Hello and welcome back to Be There with Dali Loudspeakers, where we vault over the mixing desk, sneak into the vocal and drum booths and seek out the minds behind the great recordings. I'm Andrew Harrison and these podcasts mark the launch of Dali's brand new Catch One sound bar for your home entertainment system. Upgrade your audio from Netflix or Amazon Prime Video on games, Blu-ray or DVD. Play music from Spotify, Tidal or any streaming service, all with Dali's renowned clarity and separation and do it all on a beautifully designed device that mixes ease of use with the absolute best in sound quality. Hear what you're missing with the ultimate sound companion. That's Dali Catch One. Search Dali Catch with a K to find out more. And don't forget Dali's own music magazine, also called Be There. You can get a free copy at the Dali Facebook page, facebook.com slash dali.loudspeakers. And you can find all of our title playlists there too. As ever, I've got two guests joining me to talk about some stories in and around Be There magazine. Paul Trinker is the author of Starman, the acclaimed biography of David Bowie, and also Sympathy for the Devil, The Birth of the Rolling Stones and the Death of Brian Jones. He's a former editor of the Bible of Rock and Roll History at Mojo Magazine. Hello, Paul. Hey, Welcome hi. back to me there. And we're going to be talking about the sonics of Bowie a little bit later, the weaving together of production and songwriting and all the waves he surfed and maybe sometimes got a bit swamped by. But I wanted to ask you about the posthumous Bowie industry. I mean, it's a long time since you've seen a deceased rock star uh, grow in stature after their death the way that Bowie has, and with a new audience, with a different one. Yeah, well, who has curated their own death to that kind of extent? Nobody, mm. really. So, And I'm sure he was conscious of all of that. I think that was probably in his game plan. You know, I think yeah. it was probably sketched out. It's kind of like, yep, cancer, not not bad, not good. And yeah, uh, but this, if I do it this way, then I'm going to overtake Elvis and become, you know, the biggest solo singer. So I think that's probably... Whilst being sad, missing his children, I'm sure that kind of commercial ambition was there right at the close as well. But also the bravery of taking uh, such a you know an inescapable and enormous thing and turning your final album into a meditation on it and a kind of transcendence of it. Well, transcendence is the word. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's actually very beautiful because we'll all be there one day, you know, and to actually. To, to turn into something meaningful and to work, to turn up for work. You know, yeah. that's that's what it's all about. I was, I remember being completely faked out by it because the album, I think, came out on the Friday and we discovered that he died on the Monday. And in the interim, I interviewed you for a Guardian profile of David Bowie, at the conclusion of which was, well, this is the remarkable beginning of an exciting new phase of David <laughs> Bowie's career. What will he come up with next? Mm. And then the next day, literally, that was the end of poor old David Bowie. Mm. So, I mean, I suppose that's great artistry, isn't it? When you can be both in plain sight and still retain the mystery. Well, yeah. I mean, actually, in my in my book on him, the last chapter is called The Houdini Moment. And mm. so I'd basically theorised that he wanted this glorious puff of smoke and then disappear because that's the best Hollywood ending, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's what he did. He'd been yearning for that for 20 years. I think he actually had wanted to retire in a magnificent way. And then he turned something that was imposed on him into something that he controlled. And that's a, yeah. an act of the ultimate artistry, yeah. really. Also joining us today is music writer Sean Pattenden, a graduate of the Smash Hits Magazine School of Excellence, author of How to Make It in the Music Business, back when you actually could make it in the music business. <laughs> yeah, a long time ago. Yeah, a long time ago. And also my weekly co-presenter on the Big Mouth Pop Culture Podcast. Hello, Sean. How are you? Hi, it I'm It feels good, like days since I've seen you. Um, you know, we do seem to be very much living in Bowie's world now, even more than in the last few mysterious years of his life, when he was the kind of Greta Garbo, occasionally photographed on the streets of New York mm. with a bagel. We, the, we, we live... <laughs> In Bowie world now, it's it's an extraordinary thing. He seems more vividly contemporary. Yes, well, that's our postmodern culture as well, isn't it? We mm. celebrate people in depth, sometimes more than in life. Um, there were lots of um, 
um, things going around when he died, um, there was a fantastic uh, email that he sent to Brian Eno, an almost goodbye e- yes. email that people have strangely read. <laughs> Quite a few people have read this now. Yeah. Um, but I remember someone I know works with Eno and said, Eno said, look, if he could have died on his birthday on that Friday, he would have wanted to go out with that sort of bang. And he yeah. would have been disappointed he left it another four days. So that's the theatre yeah. of him. And that that's, is going to linger. It's going to last. What is remarkable to me is that um, it is... Uh, it is the young people. It is teenagers who are really connecting with Bowie now. And nobody is really talking in terms... You know, it's almost as if his death is not part of it. There's no sort of the tragic great loss of David Bowie. It's all about the vivid life. It's all about Ziggy mm. and Lowe and even Let's Dance. And even the 80s years are getting a reappraisal now. It's all about Bowie in life as this magnificent inspiration, which I think is quite good. Oh, it's wonderful. Well, that's why I hope people become pop stars is because what you leave, you leave these records that then can be reinterpreted and re-picked up by a younger generation. And he's managed to do that. Very difficult thing to do. Absolutely. Do you think there's something in in the multiple personalities that kind of resonates with the times now when, when nothing is certain and everything is changing and you can't depend on anything? But also he serves as a blank canvas in that way. If you have lots of different lives as such, different people are going to cling on to different and relate to yeah. different versions of Bowie so there's Ziggy and then there's the Let's Dance all sorts of different ways in which we can look at him and reflect upon ourselves yeah well this is a podcast about sound quality and production and the stories behind the music so let's talk about the sonics of Bowie the aspect of him that maybe is less discussed than the overt rock star multiple personalities um, the kind of usual sort of received wisdom is that uh, this, this it's the chameleon of pop, a man who runs through a gamut of, of different guises. But um, you can actually see there's an, there's an early Bowie phase of terrible unsuccess, isn't there, in his attempts to be this pastoral folk hippie elfin princeling, <laughs> um, which was a total, total failure, wasn't it, Paul? Yeah, but throughout the whole process, he's getting his aim in. Uh, uh, I mean... A lot of people disagreed with me, but I find him a fascinating character because I believe he wasn't born inherently talented. I think he learned, he constructed himself. So when we talk about all those different personae, what the most important persona he built was David Bowie. He was David Jones. He, he used to be the sax player and didn't look particularly cool. His mate George Underwood was the cool one, and he built it up bit by bit. He learned how to sing. And then he learned how to sing in a studio by Shel Talmy. And, you know, people overlooked that, but it's Shel Talmy who basically said, look, first take, second take, if not, forget it. And that went all the way through. So yeah. he was just learning all these bits and piecing it together. And he, I think he felt regret that he wasn't inherently talented. He was jealous of Mark Bolan. He blanked, you know, George Underwood in the street because George was more talented than him. But by constructing this talent, it was something, therefore, that he could reshape later on and what better act of creation is there than to first create yourself before you create all that body of music and, that, yeah. and that's what he did but yeah he had to get his aim in and there's a lot of pretty awful stuff and hugely derivative stuff on the way but later on he just learned to rip off people really well you know, <laughs> so he did it really badly and then in the end it was like here you are Here's Starman, here's Somewhere Over the Rainbow. I've ripped it off, guys. Look, way. <laughs> it's the same Deal song. Deal with it. Yeah. Mm. I, I, I still have an enormously soft spot for uh, Police Mr Gravedigger and London by Tata, the very, very early Bowie when he's totally yes. imitative. But it's fun. Yeah, and mm-hmm. actually re- ambitious as well because yeah. he's a, a kid, I think, I can't remember if he was, uh, you know, how old he was when he recorded 
please Mr Gravy. But he's in the studio. He's controlling it all. There's a, a producer called Mike Vernon. He's kind of pouring bits of gravel on the ground. You know, it's it's insane. So what it shows right from the beginning is he just had that courage. Yeah. And he also talked people into stuff. He he wasn't a genius yet, but he talked the record company, Hugh Mendel at Decca, to letting him effectively produce himself, although he had Mike Vernon. And that's, in a way, that's the... That, that's a necessary condition, isn't it? You need to be given the space yeah. to do the thing and convince them to get your own way. And he was a genius at that as well. Yeah. I was going to say he effectively uh, ripped off Inchworm, Danny Kaye, <laughs> <laughs> as well. Paul will remember which song it is. Um, you know, so this, the sources come from everywhere with Bowie, which is what's quite exciting about him. He, he can also mythologise himself, but demythologise it at the same mm. point by being honest in interviews, saying things yeah. like that. Mm. Uh, there are several key production figures in his life, and one of the earlier ones is Ken Scott, who actually produces a little of the the, the, the buried, forgotten David Bowie debut, doesn't he? He's kind of working on a Bowie stuff from very early on. But he has a purple patch with Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, two albums basically recorded back-to-back in many respects, and Aladdin Sane and Pinups. What does Ken Scott bring to World of Bowie? Well, Ken Scott, yeah, he had been the engineer on, on, the, on the David Bowie album. I mean, David Bowie's the only person who had two self-titled albums in a row. Yes, <laughs> yeah, he had a second debut, didn't he? Yes. And, um, uh, and Ken Scott... I th- he was kind of as much engineer as producer, but what Ken did was he just kept the tapes rolling, got the sound right so that everything could be first or second tape. And what we forget from that period is that something like the Ziggy Stardust album only took form right at the last minute. You know, he, he recorded the album. There wasn't really a theme. It wasn't really a concept album until he kind of slotted in the Ziggy Stardust song at the end and then wrote Starman at the last minute. And here's a guy who'd written lots of tripe. And then the record company said, yeah, great album. Can you give us a single? And he sits down and he writes Starman. <laughs> just, I need a single. Here we go. I'll do this. We'll do that. Yeah. You know, and he's and he's just operating on all cylinders, and uh, and Ken Scott is the man who just captures it all because every nearly every one of those vocals was first or second take. Um, the thing that the sheer genius of Bowie in those early days, having schooled himself so long, he would just work on the edge and push himself. And, you know, Mick Ronson had only kind of come up with all those arrangements on those great three albums, you know, a couple of days before. So he was right outside of his comfort zone. And then they went into the studio and they knew that it had to be the first or second take because those are the ones that have got the energy. And that's really the best production lesson there is, you know, the one that people often forget. But, you know, those early takes, they're the ones with the electricity. I, I struggle to think of records that have been absolutely excellent after 18 months in the studio or mm. three years in the studio, and it's far easier to remember the disasters, isn't it? Mm. Um, the person, the production figure that everybody recalls in, in Bowie's golden period is, of course, Tony Visconti, and he actually starts a bit earlier than you expect, doesn't he? He's, he co-produces the second debut, and he's in the hype. So, I mean, what it was a very strange and intermittent relationship, wasn't it? Because... He worked with Bowie intermittently to the end. Yeah, I mean, Bowie and Visconti's collaborations were amazing. And, of course, there there were many ups and downs. There were many times they didn't speak to each other. When David disappeared, I remember seeing Visconti in in New York and he was very, very guarded and didn't really ever know if he'd ever speak to him again. But I always find those collaborations magical. I've always, you know, I, I guess for me, the, the Berlin albums are the most exciting ones, and those are the ones where Visconti has the most input because what he's doing, he's kind of orchestrating the sounds. You know, he's grouping yeah. them, and they're and they're plucking these sounds out of the ether. They're actually editing on the master tape, 
So there's no going back. And I think he, he talked about this Buddhist concept of breaking through the mire of possibilities rather than thinking, should we do this, should we do that, should we remix it later? No, they kind of, they, they basically mixed it more or less live, but they edited it on the master tape, so there's no going back. So how on the edge is that? So it's not this very cerebral little prospect of building it up. You know, they're right, they're pushing it right at the edge, and Visconti was the man who helped it together. And when you speak to the musicians who were with him, they're always, always impressed. But I love Visconti because his arrangements are great. And the very first song he did with Bowie is called Let Me Sleep Beside You. And I think it's one of the first songs that just takes us somewhere really good. Um, it sounds beautiful. It's very Dylanish, but you're just starting to see the beginnings of, uh, of a completely different aesthetic and something yeah. distinctive coming through. It's kind of... It's a Dylan ripoff, and but it's very English. His voice is very English, and Visconti brought that out too. So he was in there right at the beginning. I think that was '67, right after. I mean, I think the uh, DRAM refused to release it. You know, so it wasn't like it wasn't overnight success by any means. Yeah. But yeah, Visconti brought a huge amount to it. And, and of course, a lot of time people think this Berlin album is record were uh, produced by Brian Eno and he only turned up in the second week alone he wasn't there yeah. Visconti was there from the start one of the interesting things about Visconti is that almost uniquely in, in the world of Bowie he's there for a lot of the different phases he's there for glam he's there for young Americans when Bowie becomes a soul now um, <clears throat> he's there at, he's there in Berlin and then there's a 22 year break from Scary Monsters up until the end game when uh, you know Heathen and the, the next day and finally Blackstar so it's you know it's there isn't really anybody else like that in World of Bowie who is, you know, he, he, Bowie would tend to sort of recruit musicians, work with them, and then discard them when he felt that that not necessarily he'd got what he wanted from them, but they'd come to the end of that bit. Mm. And Visconti isn't like that; he keeps coming back. Yeah. Why was that? Well, I think you know, I think probably the commercial prospects of something recorded with Tony were, were a big part of it. I mean, I, I don't really like that run-up of. Bowie albums until Heathen where I think it's just suddenly really simple and it just and I think Bowie probably just thought he didn't have to think about it too much he could go in and do what he did best which is just kind of come up with stuff really quickly in the studio and you know and Visconti was playing bass a bit I think when they came up with those songs and it was just that sort of sonic purity because he does have a kind of his own fingerprint on the on, on the recordings and um, I, but I think you know, I think actually Bowie knew that his, his albums running up to those weren't really that good. I think ultimately they'd had a bit of a sulk, they'd had a bit of a falling out, and David would be famously very like that. You used the word discarded, and people were discarded. He was very brutal with them, but we have to acknowledge he was very brutal with himself as well. But um, I think to some extent he was looking back and trying to recapture that hunky-dory feeling, and I think he did it. Yeah. The, uh, the funny thing about Visconti is he's the person other bands get hold of when they want to sound a bit like Bowie. You know, Morrissey did it, the D Dandy Warhol did it. Mm. Does it ever actually take, though? Do you ever actually get Bowie? I don't know that you do. No, I think because oh, other people would do the same with Mick Ronson as well, wouldn't they? You yeah. know, and uh, Again, Morrissey, yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned Brian Eno, uh, who's there in Berlin, and he's, he's not really a producer, is he? He's a... He's a drop a stone into the pool, ideas, stick a spanner into the back of the television guy. Yeah, and that Bowie. worked and then didn't work. I mean, I think it ran out by the time of Lodger. I think that that kind of inspiration 
was failing somewhat. But then, you know, there are other songs like Varshava that's basically Brian Eno's song. You know, yeah. And that's the thing about Bowie. He'd curate a space. You come in, you write the whole thing, and then he gets a David Bowie stamp on the end, and that's it. Thank you, Gov. And that's what, you know, that's what happened. I but, think he got a songwriting credit on it, but not everybody did. But, you know, when you've written a song called Andy Warhol, you're allowed to behave like Andy Warhol <laughs> yeah. and just put your stamp on it. Mm. Um, I am a... I'm actually quite a born-again fan of 80s Bowie, and particularly, I mean, Let's Dance is the one everybody can agree is good. Mm. Every, you know, Let's, Dance is gen, Let's Dance is genuinely good. Nile Rodgers kind of gets rid of all of this, the, 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 the cruft and the, um, you know, the swarf of, uh, of Lodger, and you get this bright, shining design to be a megastar thing. Um but, you know, are there gems in 80s Bowie? I mean, Sean, Sean you and I have, been, have ploughed through the Loving the Alien we have, box set. We have, indeed, yes. Hmm. Um, there are, but as I say, yes, Let's Dance is the one when you're when you start feeling that Bowie is doing it for the tours, the stadia, the money. Yeah. That's when it slightly rings false, I think, and the production gets shinier and glossier. And maybe it's more ironic. Maybe it's he is trying to say something about the 80s culture at the time but it, it's too shiny and it's too stadia and I, it's I too think. produced yes well there's a great example of there's a song on i think never let me down called time will crawl and when it came out it's this big thwacky enormously mm. overproduced mm. thing it's a gigantic wedding cake and round about i think probably about the year 2000 a little after uh it was redone and just basically everything was taken off it reduced to the guitar the vocal uh drum bass and a tiny bit of embellishment and it's an amazing song it sounds like it sounds like bowie has written a song with johnny marr really really exciting and really clear paul i would say 1980s yeah all, all that stuff tends to be awful because he was thinking about it too much mm -hmm. but don't forget absolute beginners written inside about 10 minutes and mm -hmm. um, he he wrote he wrote a line, then recorded it. Wrote another line, recorded it with this young band, and they should arrange it all bit by bit because it was in his head. Yeah. And then um, the Bla Shades, the song he recorded for Iggy. Yes. Just he needed a song. He was helping out his mate, and when he wasn't thinking about it, he could still churn them out. Shades is a beautiful song, and would have been his biggest song if he'd recorded it at that time. Interesting thing about Absolute Beginners, regarded correctly as among the best David mm, Bowie songs, mm. recorded pretty much at the same time as the version of Dancing in the Street, regarded as the worst David yeah, Bowie recording yeah. by many. Yeah. Uh, there are worse ones, aren't there? But that was the most, yeah. the most conspicuous, terrible one. Um, you know, in terms of changing sound and moving the landscape, uh, you know, Bowie, for me, was the one who, strangely, took on the Beatles' ideal that your next record should be aggressively, violently different, that music is about pushing forward and changing. An uncommon thought still. You know, people still want to remake their last mm, album. Mm. For you, Paul, what, do you, what, what are the most important contributions that Bowie's production approach has made to music? Two elements. I mean, first, if we're just talking about an album, then I would pick out Low because mm. it's sonically so different. And people at the time, you read the reviews and they're like, oh, my God, I, you know, this is, this is awful. This is so weird. We listen to it now and it sounds pretty mainstream. It's, mm. and, and, and although it's an album that was recorded when he was somewhat depressed, for me, it, it, it feels gloriously upbeat and optimistic because it's got this um, joy of discovery. And so I think, you know, th th there was always the, the pushing the envelope sonically. And the other thing I'd really say in, in, via which he actually changed the sound of pop music, if you think about that period, he's got synths like the... Yeah. Like, 
you know, like crowd rock bands had, or like Noy, you know, or guitars like Noy did. But underneath, he's got funky drums. He's got a good kind of muscular rhythm section who moving things forward. Oh. And nobody had done that before. And actually, everybody does it now. So he actually changed the whole palette of, this, of, of, of music as we know it. You hear that all the time. And that, that was probably his biggest sort of intuitive leap beyond the writing really good songs and, and making this fantastic glam music. It, it, the, the way it's put together and the sound, I think, has changed. And I think those, that period is, is the one that made it happen. What's your personal favourite Bowie production? As a, as a piece of production rather than necessarily a piece of songwriting. Uh, well, okay, people would always say this to me because I wrote a book on Iggy before I um, before I did one on on Bowie, and I actually think Lust for Life, the Iggy album, is so perfect, yeah. and it's actually better than any production that David did for himself. And David just kind of sublimated himself completely to what Iggy needed, and was a brilliant producer because um, when they were working on one song, it wasn't really working. Then somebody people be strumming something in the studio then it's like oh play that a bit more and then they play a song and it becomes the passenger and they get it out of nowhere and they record it then so they stop everything they're doing change it do a different song to keep all the energy flow so and you can just hear it in the first drum beats of lust for life you know you can hear people again on the edge just grabbing these sounds out of the ether and they've only really come up with that 10 or 15 minutes before and that's why it's just so thrilling Visit dali-speakers.com forward slash be there to get your free copy of Be There with Dali. A great record isn't always about virtuosity or intricate arrangements. Sometimes it's just about an astonishing sonic experience, something that jags your attention and sticks in your head. In these podcasts, we're asking our guests a very simple question. What's the best noise to turn off on a pop record? Now, Paul made his choice last time with Ike Turner's Strat turning up on Otis Rush's All Your Love, but Sean Pattenden, what's your selection of the greatest noise in pop? Well, I've chosen something quite broad because I couldn't think of a single sound. But oh. this sound is on records from late 60s, early 70s onwards. And it keeps cropping up and it's the Fender Rhodes piano. Mm. And why is it particularly, why is it so show-stopping for you? Show-stopping for me because an electric piano that was developed for World War II soldiers as a therapy to recover is both smooth, jazzy, and you can attack it, and there is funk, and it can be classical, and it can be rock. It can almost be anything coming out of the noise of, it, of what is quite a limited synthesizer when you compare it with other, you know, the ones that mm. came along in the 80s, the human leagues are all on. Um, it um, is versatile in the sense that it's on something like Headhunters, Herbie Hancock. Yeah. It's on The Doors. Um, right, Ray Manzarek yeah. Yeah, um, would use it, um, you know, and tour with it all over the place um, and it gets used by Stevie Wonder it gets used by everybody I mean, basically everybody dropped in the 80s and then it comes back sadly I think the 90s it became a bit of a chillax instrument did, yes. in the more Chiba 07 sort of way which I'm not altogether um, so pleased with the kind of um, hanging, <laughs> hanging yeah the yeah. hanging roads called just goes bing yes Look, underneath really, yes yeah. a, a drawled um, spooned out kind of vocal um but but in the sense that it is so versatile for an instrument, but you can hear it directly. You know it's Fender Rhodes. You can also play it differently. There are different different models as the years went on. It was taken over by different people. It has an attack hmm. that some electric pianos don't have, but then you, as well you can play it in this very jazzy, smooth style. And Headhunters being one of the most amazing albums as a 
you know, to, to listen to a keyboard and listen to what Herbie Hancock is trying to do and trying to mess with sound. Yeah. Um, it's all over that. Also, Bitches Brew, Miles Davis. So it, it can go from the very extreme avant-garde into something like you know, The Doors, which yeah. is mainstream traditional rock and roll. And what's the track you want to drop on the playlist from Herbie Hancock? Watermelon Man. Excellent. That's going on there. Well, a great pop noise that I'm choosing occurs on two great records, and it is an elephant. It is the sound of an elephant's trunk, and it appears on <laughs> Missy Elliott's Work It, which we've had on the podcast before, and also Jewel by the great German group Propaganda. Um, it's just the shriek of an elephant. And on Work It by Missy Elliott, this is used to obscure rude words, which I think oh. is excellent. <laughs> if you've got a big, <laughs> let's work it. And, and on Jewel by Propaganda, it just appears in the middle of this insane sampledelic instrumental breakdown. Jewel is a beautiful pop song, which is arranged and played on uh, violent and aggressive computers. Um, and in the middle, the middle eight, which represents the psychological anger and breakdown of the vocalist as she's being destroyed <laughs> by aggressive love. We hear an elephant go in the middle of it. And they were asked about this in Smash Hits magazine, Sean's old employer. They were asked, is that a real elephant on Jewel? And they said, no, it's a microchip, a microchip with big ears. <laughs> and I love this because I think pop music needs the ridiculous in it. Mm. It yeah. can't all be suspended major fifths. It can't all be the beautiful chord or the fantastic bit of vibrato in the voice. Sometimes you just need the braying donkey on block rocking beats by the Chemical Brothers. Sheep on fine time, a new order. Sheep on fine time. <laughs> I, I, I think we mentioned earlier frogs on uh, on the perfect right. kiss. You know, <laughs> obviously sheep on KLF records is of essential course, because yeah. sheep are part of the entire aesthetic of the KLF. But, you know, the noise, the thing that just pulls you out of your I like coughing on records as well. You like coughing? Yeah, you sometimes get a middle eight and you get the band coughing, usually with a hairier sort of metal rock band, but yeah. um, you do hear coughing Are if you listen s- very carefully to some records. Can we think of any sneezes on records? Can we sneeze <laughs> on a record? There must be one. There's got to be a... Poss- possibly sampled and compressed and used as a snare by Martin Hanna on a Joy Division record, I would have thought. <laughs> so that's my contribution. You can find all of these tracks, these great moments, on our Tidal playlists on the Dolly Facebook page. If you'd like a copy of Be There, the magazine, go to dali-speakers.com slash be there and we'll send you one free of cost. We are, of course, in awe of the trained and the expert record producer, the person who can look into the future and see what a song could become. But there's also something to be said for untutored brilliance, for the self-taught, the DIY, the have a go and see what works. Sean Pattenden is a champion of outsider art and the glories of the amateur. She has a few suggestions of people who might not be great technical producers, but undoubtedly make great records. Sean, who are you thinking of? First one is the Cocteau Twins. Oh, yes. Cocteau Twins have never been produced by anybody else. And mm. the third album, Treasure, they actually approached Brian Eno, we have mentioned him earlier, yeah. um, and said, do you want to produce us? They had a meeting and he got back to them and said, I can't do this. You are really good at producing yourself. There is no way that I even have the bottle to put as much reverb as you do on the guitars. <laughs> so go away and do it yourself, which they did. And I would say that that was one aspect of of their records that is completely overlooked in that it's very, very difficult to get that, dare I use the word ethereal, that ethereal otherworldly sound without it sounding like a swampy mess. Mm. There is so much noise happening on those records and the f- frequencies are all sort of jumping about obviously from bass to very, very high and yet they create something and it's sculptural, isn't it? They create something with vocals and then with guitar and then by using a beatbox, drum machine, whatever to sort of take away some of that very mm. human frailty in the records um, create something that no other ba- band has sounded like 
yeah. before and no other band sound like since. Mm. And a big influence on Prince as well. Ah. In my famous series of arguments with people, I had a big <laughs> argument with Robin Guthrie, <laughs> who'd actually wanted to, because uh, if you remember, he produced Lawrence from Fell, and he actually yeah. wanted to produce my band when we were on Beggar's Banquet. And I kind of said, oh, well, your records sound the same, which he didn't really like very much. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then he said, but what about Prince? Prince likes my records. And that is a good trump card to pull out. Very, very hard to say, you know, to come back from that. Isn't <laughs> it? No, 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 I was there Does on Prince the floor, like any it? of your records? Well, <laughs> no. right, yeah. I can't say that he knows that. Okay, fair enough. I think he won that. Yeah, you've won that one, Guthrie. (laughs) Who else is a great self-taught person, Sean? Well, someone who had enormous experience in the recording studio, so it sort of counts that, you know, he was used to what the knobs and buttons did but wasn't a producer in himself, is Serge Gansborg, Mm -hmm. who initially was using the chanson uh, tradition and the very French, I'm going to do lots of wordplay here, and his 60s records are all right, they sound fine, but then you get into early 70s and you get the histoire de Melody Nelson and the sound on that record is absolutely something else. He works with composer Jean-Claude Vanier, but there is no producer as such. And what they do is arrange it. As we know, the, the, it's, a very, it's 28 minutes long, it's almost an EP. Yeah. It starts with this very low bass which is attributed to Dave Richmond and or Herbie Flowers. You decide there's still an argument about whether it was Herbie Flowers on the record. And the instrumentation, the arrangement of strings, bass, and then the voice, and obviously it's Serge Gansborg, there are a lot of words. Mm. In front. And the narration of that and how the cinematic feel of that record permeates the whole thing. It's absolutely, it's, it's still what bands listen to today. Yeah. And, and when bands are mastering and mixing, they go back and they listen to other records that they like to see and they compare. It's still what they listen to as a benchmark of how you do that sort of record. Is there a knob in the studio with Gansbergy on it? And you can turn the Gansberg in the top <laughs> of course. to about 10. Yeah. I think you're also a very big proponent of Joni Mitchell as producer. I love Joni Mitchell as a producer. Um, Hegira is my favourite Joni Mitchell album this week. Um, and she wrote all of the album, produced it herself. It's a road album and it's incredibly evocative, but made all the important decisions on it. And it had a very traditional um, workman-like, apparently, um, uh, band lineup at first. And she thought, this just isn't working. I don't understand how this is... It's, it's not got the feel that I need to. So she rang up Jaco Pistorius... He of fretless bass fame, um, Weather Report, and he's on four tracks and it transforms the album. And only someone who can really understand Sonics and what you want from a record that doesn't sound like it yet can say, I need that person and they can transform something. And I must say, the bass is... Without the bass, it wouldn't be the record that it is. It is extraordinary. She has an amazing ear, Jenny Mitchell. Um, I have a few nominations for the self-taught and amazing. Um, St Etienne, I don't think they would oh. ever describe themselves as amazing producer-producers, but what they will do is they will try anything and they will get the right people in to help them realise it. They are brilliant at collaborating with, with, um, with engineers and as brilliant as songwriters in that they can, um, they can picture a thing and find a way to, towards it. They're definitely not your people if you want to you know, try and modulate your lower fifths, but they're definitely your people if you want to just f- go somewhere unusual and there are, a, a, there are a, a billion places you can go to. They're equally at home making a banging dance tune, uh, a pastoral folk thing, a piece of uh, an ambient swatch, and it always sounds different. It always sounds like them, and I was endlessly impressed by, by what they do. Somebody else who, a bit like Joni Mitchell, ever gets credit as a producer is Madonna who is a studio martinet 
because she always knows what she wants from something. She she produces her producers as much as she produces her musicians. And uh, she's doing another one with Merwes that she did the music album with. So that's going to be that's a good oh, cool. idea. Um, and in a similar vein, Björk is essentially a, a self producer as, as much as she, she is a vocalist. Um, I sort of wonder if, uh, if we aren't in a time now where this won't, will no longer be seen as an unusual thing because every artist is essentially a producer first and foremost mm. and a songwriter subsequently because that's just the way music is made now, it's isn't technology, it? technology, man, isn't it? Pro yeah. Tools. Well, yeah, the studio is is the instrument, you know, yeah. and I think there has been a change in in that way for sure. And increasingly the studio's on your iPad or your laptop yeah. anyway. Yeah, and, and, and that does make things easy, you know, that makes things better in a way. So people are often trying to replicate old kind of resources, but... I mean, Melody Nelson is a great example where that was just sculpted in the studio. They had a groove, and then the musicians came up with the groove, you know, because I think it's actually Alan Parker who played whatever David Bowie tells you. He played the guitar on Rebel Rebel. He does all the guitar (laughs) on Melody Nelson. And, you know, it just... The sound of it alone is fantastic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's not like anything they recorded with Blue Mink, you know, which is what they did in the daytime. And how, yeah. how they just came out of it from the ether at, at the moment, there's just something... It's, it's, it is in that Bowie sense of kind of curating a space is what, what you do, what you play, doesn't really matter. It's just literally that what you're doing with this huge instrument called the studio. I think we're seeing a theme emerge from this show, which is create a space and then do it quickly. <laughs> Don't mess about. Yeah, tips for, yeah, tips for teams yeah, there, yeah. yes. Um, we're coming to the end of the show, uh, which means we're going to ask our guests to nominate in an ongoing series their studio heroes. Who are the unsung musicians, mixers, producers, backroom talents who make the great records great? Now, Sean has already nominated hers on a past show. It was radiophonic workshop genius Delia Derbyshire, a woman decades ahead of her time and actually, in a parallel dimension, uh, the creation of Doc <laughs> 2 theme and, yeah. amongst other astonishing, groundbreaking works of electronic music. But Paul Trinker, who's your studio hero? Well, actually, suddenly that distraction made me think of Raymond Scott, who's an amazing studio hero, whose soothing sounds for babies is one of the weirdest albums ever and probably <laughs> inspired, uh, I don't know, a generation of serial killers, I've been told. <laughs> but anyway, I'm going to go with something more mainstream and think about Jerry Wexler, because it's Jerry Wexler who got Aretha Franklin to sit down and play piano while she sang. Ah. Um, before that, she, you know, she'd, I think she'd worked on Columbia and hadn't really, uh, and you know, she was known to be amazing. She was amazing live, but couldn't really cut it on record. It was Jerry Wexler who told her to sit down and play the piano because somehow that might, made the sound cohere more. And then Tom Dowd was the engineer who collected who kind of uh, basically got it all on tape. And when you listen to those songs, just the recording quality is amazing. It's so kind of specific, and yet it's so clear, and yet it's so expansive. You think about something like Good To Me As I Am To You, which is a song I especially love because it's got one of the people I detest most in music, <laughs> Eric Clapton playing guitar, <laughs> and it's absolutely fantastic. You know, and uh, every song you know starts off quiet and then... To actually record something with such dynamic range and yeah. get it all in that frame, it, it's just such, uh, it, it's so difficult. So many people couldn't do it and they just made it happen over a sequence of years. And, and every song from that era is just fabulous. And, you know, Aretha never really, never really surpassed that work. And of course, we hear them all the time. And, you know, but for me, they don't, it, it, you know, they're not cliche. There's still something very pure. And simple about all of them. So yeah, definitely Jerry and Tom. And the key to that particular thing was making Aretha Franklin think about something else while she's trying to sing. You got it. Yeah, good psychology. Yeah, mm, keep distracting them. That 
brings us to the end of this episode of Be There. Thanks to our guest Paul Trinkett and Sean Patton. Hope to see you again soon on the show. Remember, listeners, you can get the playlist that accompanies this show at the Dali Facebook page, and you can get a free copy of Be There magazine as well. The Facebook address is facebook.com slash dali.loudspeakers. And if you like this edition of the podcast, why not subscribe on your favourite podcast app? We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening. Be There from Dali Loudspeakers was presented by Andrew Harrison and the studio producer was me, Alex Reese. Be There is a Podmasters production. <laughs>